You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jackie Alamani, a congressional investigations reporter here at The Post. Thanks for joining us today for the first installment of our new series, Leveling the Playing Field, featuring women in sports, from athletes to coaches to executives. Joining me today to talk about leveling the playing field for female soccer players is Jessica Berman, the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League. Commissioner Berman, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. So I want to get straight to the numbers here. It was reported in 2022 that the league saw almost a 90% increase in sponsorship revenue and a 25% increase in season ticket holders. Last month, the National Women's League said that it had sold the rights for a new team at a record price. What do these numbers reflect about the growing value of women's soccer? The investment community, our fans and sponsors are seeing the NWSL as a business. And when you invest in a business, you do so with the expectation of a return on your investment. And that is the seismic shift that we're seeing across our ecosystem, which is that historically women's sports has been thought of as an afterthought or as something that we need to do because we care about the community or because we want to do the right thing. We are now inviting into our ecosystem brands and investors who really see this as an opportunity for growth and have seen franchise valuations grow in men's professional sports and recognize that the NWSL is the next thing to grow. While we're on the topic of expansion, actually, uh, I have lots of friends um, who are big fans of the NWSL and um, specifically asked me to press you on this. Um, Can you lay out a timeline for expansion and any potential future teams? I know you just recently uh, announced the Bay Area expansion franchise in April. Yeah, well, I'll say that We are a 12-team league for this season, the 2023 season, and for 2024, we'll be a 14-team league. We are inviting the Utah Royals back into the league. Uh, They crushed it in terms of attendance when they were in the league several seasons ago, and we're really proud to bring them back to the community. And our team 14 is going to be in the Bay Area, which we announced earlier this spring. Uh, We do expect for the 2026 season to add two more teams. And so that process will begin later this calendar year. And through the process we ran in 2022 for this round of expansion, we have an incredible amount of interest from qualified investors who want to get in early. And even though our valuations have increased in a meaningful way, to $53 million with the team we sold to the Bay Area, we're still really early in our process in terms of our growth and where we think this league is going to be in three to five to 10 years. And so a lot of investors are recognizing that and are excited to begin that process of mutual due diligence with us. Well, and on that topic of, of investors who are interested in these teams, there are a lot of celebrities that have turned their sights to owning athletic enterprises. Um, Alexis Ohanian, for example, just made an investment in women's soccer. Natalie Portman has a partial ownership of the Angel City Football Club. How does celeb ownership in particular help to bump up the excitement and interest of these teams? 
And are there any celebrities that have been angling for any teams that we might not know about? Well, I, I think it's not all that new or innovative for celebrities and athletes to be investing in sports. And given their influence on the community, that's probably not surprising. The major difference, I would say, and the ingredients that have made for those investments to have outsized impacts in communities and on behalf of the NWSL is really that those celebrities and those athletes are authentically engaged in their investment. And historically, what we've seen, I think, in many instances with celebrities and athletes is that they have made the investment and maybe been a little bit more passive or less engaged and less involved. If you watch an Angel City game, as I did this past Sunday, you would have seen Jennifer Garner and Natalie Portman on the pitch, leading the supporters group chants, uh, engaging the fans, bringing their families, and really showing up as part of the fabric of Angel City. Similarly, in Gotham here in New York, if you attend a game, you'll see Eli Manning on the pitch and with the fans and with the supporters groups. He sometimes shows up at practice and plays soccer with the players on the team. Um, and that authenticity really matters because it resonates. It allows for fans and sponsors to really know that they're making the investment because they believe in it. They're not just willing to write a check, they're willing to put in their time. And our research team pulled actually a, a rather surprising, at least for me, fact about um, some of the moves you've made since you uh, have become commissioner, which is that you hired the first chief marketing officer for the league last August. What plans do you both have to tap into the potential 54 million league fans in the US? Really crazy to imagine that the league didn't have a chief marketing officer, but I think it's actually telling as to the impact we're seeing in such a short period of time that our chief marketing officer, Julie Haddon, who came from the National Football League, has really launched a strategy that has our owners investing in our own brand. For the first time, we launched a league-wide marketing campaign for the start of the 2023 season which is called We Play Here, which is really intended to run a thread through our entire season and connect into and out of the Women's World Cup this summer to tell everyone who either is or is a prospective NWSL fan that those players who are going to be competing or will have competed on an international stage who are the best in the world actually play in the NWSL. And so if you're one of those billions of people who pay attention to the Women's World Cup every four years, you can actually be a fan every single year, every single weekend, because the NWSL has a lot of those same players. A third of our players actually will be playing in the World Cup this summer. And so um, her efforts are really are around us building our own brand identity, uh, standing for ourselves and who we are and what we believe in so that investors and sponsors really see us for our true value proposition um, that has a standalone identity. And, and that's really the, the shift that has happened for this season. And we will continue to iterate and build on a year over year basis. And you've spoken quite a bit about the this shift that we're seeing across the landscape in the way that women are viewed in sports outside of uh, these marketing efforts that you're taking to 
brand the league. What else do you think is contributing um, to the shift in attitude towards female athletes? Well, we know that the athletes in the NWSL are cultural icons, and they actually are the tip of the spear in people's households and living rooms, where we know that both uh, our current generation of fans and our next generation of fans, they know who our players are. They know who Megan Rapino is. They know who Trinity Rodman is. They know who Alex Morgan is. They they track and follow the players who are playing in our league. And I would say that the most seismic shift and maybe the, the metric that I'm most proud of is that uh, our players are showing up to really promote and market and support the league and our growth strategies. You see them telling their followers on social media to tune in or to buy tickets or to show up to support their team. And that really wasn't happening historically, in part because of some of the challenges that the league had faced. And I know ran as part of the the video that introduced our interview. And I'm really proud of the way that we've unlocked the trust and support of the players, which is an ongoing process. It's not a sort of check the box one and done. Now the players trust us. We have an entire team of people who are focused on a day-to-day basis to making sure that our player experience is at the level of excellence that the players perform on the pitch and that we're showing up for them. And in turn, they are showing up for us. And I think that is in part the uh, one of the results that you're describing, which is that we've really begun to see the unlock of that potential. I think the second point is really more of a statement on society and culturally where we are both here in the US and globally, which is that I think the world is ready to see women excel. And there is an extremely high demand and low tolerance um, for inequity and uh, high tolerance for equity and for seeing people achieve greatness and putting people, all people in a position to be able to be successful. Well, that was going to be my next question, precisely equal pay. It's obviously a, a huge focus under your leadership, and it has been for previous leaders as well, although um, the changes have been a bit incremental. But you're currently running the National Women's Soccer League Challenge Cup. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how that has contributed to efforts to achieve pay equity? We're super proud of our partnership with UKG. And uh, in particular, when you can find a sponsor who can really show up like a partner whose values aligned, it is a recipe for true success. And with UKG deciding to really lead and and sponsor our efforts around the Challenge Cup, we've been able to reshape and redefine our prize pool and make it the first million dollar uh, prize pool that's available to, to players and to really change the landscape and challenge others and even ourselves to look at all aspects of compensation, player compensation, to identify ways in which we can actually reward and compensate these incredible athletes for for their performance, um, which we know has historically been a challenge. And I think it's um, particularly interesting in 
the form of a case study because you look at UKG and their business model and their business is really around payroll as a payroll provider. And that gives them unique visibility into some of the lack of pay equity that exists in society today where women are still paid less than men for doing the same exact job. And we are working really hard to create the business model and the revenue streams that will support us continuing to be able to play, pay the players more and pay the players what they deserve and have earned throughout the course of their lives. And this year has already been a banner year for women's sports, but what else needs to be done to finally really truly level the playing field? The thing we always come back to is media coverage. Uh, most women's sports fans, um, it, it's a small um, but mighty group of people who are avid fans and they've been trained to be active users. They know how to find the properties and the content that they're looking for. So if you're an NWSL fan, you have a Paramount Plus subscription. You know when our games are on CBS. You know when our games are on CBS Sports Network. Um, you know our social handles. All of those sorts of uh, access points that exist if you are an NWSL fan and same if you are a fan of the LPGA or the WNBA or even uh, college women's sports. But for men's sports that have historically been given broad access and wide distribution and coverage, those mainstream fans are uh, very much trained to have sports served to them when they are just flipping channels and they don't have to pay attention to, oh, what, what do I need to know and what do I need to do in order to access this? They turn on the TV and lo and behold, they might be a casual fan of a particular sport, but when they turn on the TV, that sport is on, and so they watch it. And that is the kind of casual access that women's sports still do not have. And it is the piece of the equation that when it is solved and when women's sports is given the appropriate level of visibility and distribution so that it is in places and spaces that fans are trained to look for and watch sports more generally, that women's sports will actually be able to really reach their potential. Well, and the FIFA president right now is threatening not to broadcast the upcoming World Cup in England, France, Germany, Italy, or Spain because of some of the outrage over broadcasters offering too little to screen the games. Gianni Infantino said, Quote, to be very clear, it is our moral obligation not to undersell the FIFA Women's World Cup. What's your reaction to his comments? I can only look at it from the perspective of the NWSL. And when I think about our media strategy as it relates to live games, it's our job to negotiate for the highest possible value and to ensure that we're serving our game to our fans, knowing that there's a large cohort of people who really care and are really invested and have invested an incredible amount of time and money into becoming fans and being fans of our sport. And it's our job to increase the top of the funnel so that we have more of them. And that's what we're working on uh, day in, day out. Uh, actually actively in the process of determining our 2024 and beyond media strategy and it is our hope that we will only continue to improve 
the distribution and reach of what we already offer to our fans today through our CBS partnership. And Europe is FIFA's most lucrative broadcast market, brought in over uh, 100 billion, uh, 1 billion in broadcast revenue between 2019 and 2022, uh, most of which was from the Men's World Cup. If the bids don't come up to a fair price, how do you think it's going to impact viewership? Well, I, I can only imagine if it's not available, then that's going to affect the numbers significantly. Um, I, I do sort of empathize with the problem to solve, which is that if we use past data to uh, define our future, we will continue to repeat the same challenges that we've had in the past. And a lot of the methodologies and metrics that are used by traditional media companies use Nielsen ratings or use very traditional data points that historically have either not been available to women's sports or have only been offered in very limited circumstances such that the data is not reliable. And that creates, as you might imagine, a self-fulfilling cycle where if you need that information in order to prove your value and you don't have that information, it becomes impossible to prove your value and to increase by appropriate uh, increments given our starting point, which I think all would acknowledge is, is certainly not where we should be given how strong our fan base is and how attractive our fan base is. And so um, I, I, I clearly see and understand the challenge of women's sports as someone who's new to this side of the industry. And you know we're, we're working really hard to maximize the opportunities that we have. Uh, we've already had, for example, two games on linear broadcast. One was this past weekend in Washington, DC. And those ratings are performing really well relative to other comparable properties, including men's properties. And so, you know, we believe even though we have a smaller data set, which is by definition a virtue of the opportunities that have been offered to women's sports historically, when women's sports are given the opportunity to shine, they do overperform. Another example would be our championship game, which was also in Washington, DC where we had nearly a million viewers and we were going up against the World Series and college football. And we were still able to bring in a million viewers, which by all accounts was an incredible achievement. I'm pretty sure I went to that game. Um, but I want to get to an audience question here from Therese in Michigan, who asks, leveraging FIFA to be more proactive in financing women's soccer has been a slow process. What levers need to be pulled to accelerate this? It's a great question. I think the the levers that I've seen being pulled that have really impacted the future of women's sports are really around the white space where the work and the business is not being done. So um, I'll just give an example, um, tracing back to what we were just discussing about traditional media companies' investment in women's sports. When that wasn't happening, you saw uh, new businesses launch like Just Women's Sports or the Women's Sports Network to identify and to capture the mindshare of women's sports fans. And I don't know this for a fact because I don't work there, but I could imagine that those traditional sports 
media companies are watching those businesses grow, realizing now that they missed an opportunity and trying to figure out how to capture those those fans or those consumers or those viewers that they may have now lost to those startup businesses. And so, I, you know, I think anytime there are business opportunities in the entrepreneurial world that we live in, to the extent they exist, there will be someone who shows up to occupy that white space and prove the value of that missed opportunity. And I think we're seeing that right now play out in women's sports. Now I want to circle back to what was touched upon in the introductory video. When you inherited the league, it was just before the results of an internal investigation into sexual misconduct uh, was released. Can you talk to us a little bit about the fallout from that report and how have the experiences for women soccer players changed as a result of the report? Well, I, I hope that their day-to-day is experienced experience um, now looks nothing like what it looked like before. Um, The results of the investigation were really um, horrifying uh, to me as a sports business executive and someone who's worked at professional sports leagues my entire career, but also just as a mom and a human, um, imagining that that there were um, broken systems in place that weren't there to provide the safeguarding and protection that professional athletes deserve. Um, And as a result of the investigation, which was a really uh, quite thorough process that went on for more than a year, we released all the findings of the investigation while our law firms did who, who conducted that. And as a result, we then issued corrective action to hold people accountable for the misconduct that was identified by the investigators who were jointly commissioned by us and the Players Association. And then finally, we have launched uh, what will be a multi-pronged systematic change in reform across all dimensions of our entire ecosystem. We are um, examining and making changes in policies, in programs, in education, in systems, in communication. Um, And all of that is either been executed or in the process of being executed. And we'll continue to examine, assess, learn, iterate, um, pivot as we need to, to make sure that our league is positioned for success and most importantly, um, the standard that I said from day one, we would hold ourselves to, we want to be a league where players feel proud to play in the NWSL. And uh, we will continue to hold ourselves to that standard. And I want to get to another audience question, which I think a lot of us have from Richard in Virginia, who asks, do you feel you fully addressed the scandal involving physical and emotional abuse of players by several coaches? Uh, I don't know that uh, you could ever fully address something like that. Um, I, I think we've we've done we've taken the steps that have been brought to our attention that we can. We've put uh, systems in place that allow for our players to continue to have mental health support. Um, we have an open and anonymous reporting system where players can raise their hand to say they need help uh, in any capacity. We've hired human resource professionals um, and are close to hiring uh, 
player safety officer whose job it's going to be, full-time job, to focus on safeguarding and, and player protections in the workplace. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm proud of all the steps we've taken and, and we have made. And it, it would be probably unfair for me to say that we've addressed every single issue. Um, we've addressed the things that we know about and, and that have been brought to our attention. But, you know, I, I still think about the players who um, have experienced that trauma. And I'm sure to them, it, it's hard to say that those issues have been fully corrected or addressed. I think we have, un unfortunately, time for only one more question. Um, so I want to get to the fact that the league recently announced that it signed its youngest player. How do you think that this sort of milestone um, represents the level of, of interest in women's soccer? And well, in the league, been, really. Yeah, it's been an education for me um, because I come from other sports where it would be unheard of to have a 15 year old playing pro soccer is as I've learned and been educated by the global football experts, the, a very unique sport in that players develop super young. And we want to make sure that those players who are developing in their teenage years, who are ready to go pro come to play in our league and don't go somewhere else. And so We've tried to have a growth mindset and be flexible to accommodate those circumstances and really exciting to see it prove to be true that those players can actually compete in our league. Um, not just compete, but you know, many of them are doing incredibly well. Um, and it, it's actually provided, I think, an infusion of excitement, enthusiasm into the league that um, maybe some thought would happen, but um, I, I think it's been a pleasant surprise for a lot of people to watch how they've been able to adapt into the pro game and how unbelievably talented the youth in in this country are. I think it bodes well, certainly, for the future of this league as we think about growth and expansion, that there are 15-year-olds who, if they weren't playing in the NWSL, might still be playing in high school. Um, that's just like an incredible thing to sort of wrap your heads around. And we're really excited for the other talent who are developing in this country, which, as I understand it, is deeper than probably anywhere else in the world. Suppose your recruitment team is pretty busy. Unfortunately, we are out of time, though, and are going to have to leave it there. Commissioner Jessica Berman from the National Women's Soccer League. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.